at a chapter that deals with promise and intercession. Promise and intercession. And there's two, what I call anchor points in this chapter that I want to give attention to and put your attention to right at the very beginning. And we'll come back to these, obviously, as we move through the chapter. But they're just such key anchor points, if you will, in this chapter. I want you to see, first of all, the first one in verse 14 of Genesis 18. Where God, having this conversation with Abraham, says, Is anything impossible for the Lord? That's a key phrase. That is an anchor point, not just in Genesis 18. That's an anchor point for our life. And if you underline your Bible or, or in some way mark your Bible, boy, that's a great phrase out of that verse to just keep in mind. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Maybe right now in your life, you need that. You need that encouragement. Maybe you're praying about something, hoping for something. You're dealing with some situation or circumstance. You need to be reminded that nothing is too difficult or impossible for our God. And then the second anchor point is found in verse 25. And this is where Abraham is interceding for Sodom. And in the midst of this, in the course of this intercession, here's what Abraham says to the Lord. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? Yes. God always does what is right. And Abraham is making his appeal, his prayer, his intercession to God based on that truth. Even as followers of God, sometimes, it's like, God, are, do you always do what's right? Yes. Every single time. God can't do anything other than what's right. And that's just good to remember because <coughs> Satan, Satan will try to cast doubt on God's goodness and on him doing right all the time. I mean, even back to Genesis 3 where he comes to Adam and Eve, he was trying to cast light on God's holding out on you by not allowing you to eat from that one tree. God's not good. He's not always right. Yes, he is. And we'll see how this is so important to Abraham's intercession. So those two anchor points at the very beginning of this passage. But what's this passage all about? Well, again, we said before our time of worship tonight that God in his grace makes us his friends. And his friendship is transformative. There are some times in our life where we have a friend in our life and that friendship transforms our life. We're, we're not the same because of that friendship. 
God is obviously that kind of a friend to us or wants to be that kind of a friend to us. And we have seen that as Abraham has walked with God, that God's friendship with Abraham has changed him, changed his heart, changed who he is. We're going to see in the first part of this chapter, Abraham's heart of service, his servant's heart. And it's a great encouragement to us to be a servant of the Lord. And then in the second part of this passage, we're going to see Abraham's heart of intercession for others. Not just the righteous who may still be living in Sodom, but even the wicked. And how he appeals to God based upon the fact that God always does what is right. So let's look at this passage tonight. First of all, There's a verse in the book of Hebrews that says, Be careful of entertaining a stranger because you may be entertaining an angel and not aware of it. That's certainly true here in this passage. I think at the very beginning, Abraham did not know that he was entertaining a couple angels and the Lord of glory. He did not know it at the beginning. But I think as time moved on, he realized whose presence he was in. Maybe some of you in your lifetime feel like you entertained an angel at some point in your life. Some of you have heard my story about when I was very, very young and God was calling me to the ministry, how I believe I encountered an angelic being And how God used that encounter to confirm his calling in my life. Well, that was certainly true here of Abraham. Notice it says in chapter 18, verse 1, that the Lord visited or appeared to Abraham. God was coming down from heaven to appear to Abraham and to visit him, first of all, to encourage his faith, to reassure his faith in his promise that still is not fulfilled. And he wasn't just coming to encourage Abraham, he was coming to encourage his wife Sarah as well, as we're going to see later on. In fact, I think that's primarily who God was coming to reassure and encourage. Wasn't Abraham, it was Sarah, which is why later on he asked, where's your wife Sarah? Because he was coming to encourage her as well. See, God is concerned that both Abraham and Sarah would respond to him in faith. God always works on both sides of the equation. So the Lord, the Bible says, appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent, notice, during the hottest time of the day. Now, this was like here. This was desert conditions. So you can imagine how hot it would have been at that time. And Abraham is not a young man. He is 99 years old. And he's sitting at the door of his tent at the hottest time of the day. It's not the most convenient time for somebody to come by. 
And let's not forget before we move on here that Abraham is a great man with lots of servants, which makes what Abraham is about to do even more remarkable. Abraham could have called many of his servants to do all of this for him, but he didn't because Abraham had learned the glory, if you will, in serving. He learned through walking with his God that God is a God that values service and having the heart of a servant. Jesus even said this to his followers. He said, who's the greater, the one who serves or the one who's being served? And they said, well, the one who's being served. And Jesus said, yes, but I'm among you as the one who serves. And later on, Jesus makes this unbelievable statement to his followers. He says, one day in the kingdom, in glory, I'm going to spread a table before my people. And I'm going to serve you in my kingdom. Jesus, the Lord of glory, isn't going to give up being a servant even when we get to heaven in glory. He's going to still serve us in some ways as we serve him because serving is an honorable, glorious thing. And you see, Abraham has caught this. And it's a great example for us to make sure that we always keep the heart of a servant. Because again, this wasn't the opportune time of the day to be serving. It's a hot time. Sometimes God calls us to serve and it's not convenient and it's not opportune for us, but the opportunity is there. And so Abraham looked up and saw three men standing across from him, verse 2, and when he saw them, he ran. Here's a 99-year-old man who's running, making haste to welcome them in the oriental, if you will, fashion of hospitality, which was so important in those days. And he went and he met them and he bowed low to the ground as if he was in the presence of someone superior. Now again, remember, Abraham was a great man who had a great army at his disposal and great servants and all of this you know, cattle and everything, and yet here he is bowing before these three men. And he says in verse 3, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass me by and leave your servant. Give me an opportunity to serve you. Again, a 99-year-old man, running to serve in the hottest part of the day, not calling his servants to serve these men, but doing it himself. Let a little water, verse 4, be brought so that you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree. He is throwing out the red carpets. And let me get a bit of food, verse 5, so that you may refresh yourselves since you have passed by your servant's home. Notice here that Abraham views their visit as an opportunity to be seized. It will be his honor 
to serve them. What a great example for us. The Lord has come to visit Abraham. To strengthen his faith, to encourage his faith, to reassure him of his promise. But before he even does that, Abraham is just showing great hospitality here. And doing it himself. And then he says, after that you may be on your way. And they say, all right, you may do as you say. So notice here again, verse 6. This 99-year-old man springing into action. The Bible says in verse 6, he hurried into the tent. And you can just hear him, right, to his wife. Quick, take three measures of fine flour needed and make some bread. We've got visitors. Then Abraham ran to the herd. And chose a fine, tender calf and gave it to a servant who quickly prepared it. He was going to give them a sumptuous feast. He wasn't just going to give them a snack. He wasn't just going to give them, and please, I'm not against chips and guacamole. But he wasn't just going to give them some chips and guacamole or salsa. No, he was going to feed them this sumptuous feast, a whole meal. Abraham then took some curds and milk along with the calf that had been prepared and placed it or set it in front of them. And they ate while he was, notice, standing near them under a tree. Why was he doing that? Because he was attentive. He wanted to be near them in case any needs would arise that he could take care of. He didn't just set the meal there and go. He made sure that he would watch over them and that any refills that they needed, any, any extra food that they needed, maybe seconds or whatever, that he would be there to attend to their every need. Abraham, the leader of the household, the one who could have called his servants to do all this, and he's doing it. And he's doing it in the hottest part of the day, and he's 99 years old running around. He's showing us what it means to be a servant. He's reminding us the value that God places on service and on having a servant's heart and on seizing those opportunities that come our way. Yes, God does not hold us responsible for every need that we find out about. But many times we lose the privilege and the blessing and even the honor of serving because we let too many needs pass us by. Because it's not convenient. It's not opportune for me. I might have to adjust this or adjust that or go out of my way a little bit. Yeah. Sometimes we may be called to do that. But then notice verse 9. And here's where I think we get to the place where we understand the main reason why God came to visit Abraham. He came to encourage Abraham. 
his faith, but he also came to encourage his wife Sarah's faith. Because they asked him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he replied there in the tent. And one of them said, I will surely return to you when the season comes around again and your wife Sarah will have a son. It's going to happen. And of course, you know the story. She's listening and she's like, I am so far past being able to have children. This is just laughable. We saw that Abraham laughed last week, but not in a cynical way. And more just of, I don't understand how this is going to happen. But Sarah's laugh is a little bit more unbelieving. And the Lord says to Abraham, verse 13, Why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child when I am old? And it's in that context that then the Lord says this to Abraham. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything beyond the power of God? Is anything too difficult for God? God, notice, roots his call for Sarah to believe and Abraham to believe on the fact that he can do anything. And God still roots that truth in everything that he weaves into our lives as well. He is asking us, his people, will you believe that I can do the impossible? Will you believe that I have the power, that nothing is beyond my capability, that nothing is too difficult for me? It may be impossible for you as a human being, and it may be even impossible for you to wrap your mind around it, but in faith, will you respond to me and trust me? And right now, I believe that God is doing the same thing with you and I. He's saying, I need you to believe that nothing is impossible for me. Because maybe in truly accepting that and embracing that, it will change our perspective right now. It will change our outlook. It will change our attitude. It may even change our prayer life and what we are praying for and how diligently we are praying. Maybe we've stopped praying because maybe we don't believe truly that God can do anything. And so we're not praying as we should or praying about some of the things that we should because we truly don't believe that God is the God of the impossible. Tonight, God wants his people to embrace this truth just as he wanted Sarah and Abraham to embrace this truth and to root his call for us to believe in that truth. He says, I will return to you when the season comes around again and Sarah will have a son. Notice, Sarah lied, saying, I didn't laugh, because she was afraid. But the Lord said, nope, you did laugh. See, the Lord knows her heart, 
And the Lord knows our hearts, too. The Lord knows whether we believe or not. He knows what we're thinking, even if we don't say it. He knows what is the attitude in our heart towards him at all times. We cannot hide it from the Lord. And yet, in his compassion and love and mercy for us, he's very patient with us, and he's inviting us to believe in him, the God of the impossible. And this is the promise, then, you, if you will, that we see here in this first part of the chapter. This is primarily why God came to visit Abraham on that hot afternoon. He again is coming to reassure and strengthen the faith of Abraham and Sarah in his promises. And God wants to come into our life and visit us, if you will. He wants his presence to come into our life and remind us of not only his promises, but of his ability to fulfill those promises, no matter how fantastical they may be. And I believe that God's doing the same thing tonight. He's saying, believe in me. Trust in me to be able to do the impossible. When you leave here tonight, or those of you that are watching by live stream tonight, when you go to bed tonight, I'd like to encourage you that as you go to bed tonight, as you go to sleep tonight, as you fall asleep tonight, that you think about that phrase, is anything impossible for the Lord? And then wake up tomorrow thinking about that phrase again. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Because I think when you and I live truly embracing that and believing that, it changes the way we live. It changes how we view life and our circumstances and our situation and what we pray for and how we pray. It's transformative because the friendship of God with his people is transformative. And one of the things that we see how God's friendship transformed Abraham was giving him the heart of a servant. I'm not saying that Abraham never was a servant, but Certainly, as he walked with his God all these years, some 25 years now since he left Haran, he was learning to become more and more of a servant and to see the honor and the privilege it was to serve others as it was these two angels and the Lord of glory here on that hot afternoon. Then when you come to verses 16 through 33, we see again a picture of God's closeness, his intimacy with Abraham. God in his grace has made Abraham his friend. And because of that, God desires to reveal to Abraham his plans and what he's about to do because that's what friends do. We disclose things to each other when we have those close friendships. And that's what God is doing with Abraham. He's not doing it with everybody. But he wants to do it with Abraham because Abraham is the friend 
of God and he's walked with God. And therefore, God has this desire to say, I want to share with you something that I'm not necessarily sharing with everybody, but I want to share it with you. And I think about that with us. And how this truth can even be applied to our life. It's why God calls us to, to this intimate relationship and fellowship with him. Because part of the great result and byproduct for you and I, when we get closer and closer to God and draw near to him, is he will tell us and reveal more and more of his plans and purposes and what's going on in his mind and, and, and share his heart with us. But if he doesn't see that we have any interest in truly being a friend to God and walking closely with God, then God will not share those intimate details with us. He'll look for others that he can share them with. I don't know about you, but I want to know what God's getting ready to do. I want God to reveal those things so that I can know the heart of God and know what, what he's thinking and what he's getting ready to do before he even does it. And that's exactly what you see happening here. When the men got up to leave, verse 16, they looked out over Sodom. Now Abraham was walking with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, should I hide or should I not reveal to Abraham what I'm about to do? Amazing statement. I, he's basically saying to the angels who've accompanied him, I, I want to share with Abraham my plan. But he's the same God. He wants to do that with his people today, if we're interested. After all, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations on the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using his name. A couple things. First of all, it's not who we are. It's who we are becoming. Notice, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. Second, we are blessed to be a blessing. All the nations on the earth will pronounce blessings on one another. And then notice the last phrase, using his name. His name will elicit certain things in people's minds and hearts. And I couldn't help but think, how will you and I be remembered when people bring up our name and use our name? What will we be known for? What will they say about us when they... Say our name. God says, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then the Lord will give to Abraham what he promised. Now again, we don't know exactly when did Abraham figure out that one of the visitors wasn't just another angelic being, but was the Lord of glory. And when did Abraham figure out that the other two were angelic beings? We don't know. 
But at some point, he did. Because he begins this conversation with the Lord in just a moment. So the Lord said, verse 20, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so blatant, so heavy, so burdensome, that I must go down and see if they are as wicked as the outcry suggests. If not, I want to know. That's strange, right? It almost makes it sound like God really doesn't know what's going on. But that's not it at all. God, being God, is totally aware of what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. The point is that he's emphasizing the fact that he did know because he's even willing to send angels as his investigators and as the ones who are going to carry out ultimately his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God is basically, you know how like the Bible uses human, you know, arms and hands and eyes and stuff for God, right? And I'm not talking about Jesus in his human form. I'm talking about the invisible God. And yet we know that God is spirit, right? The Bible does that so that we as human beings can sort of get some kind of visual and have a help to understand our God and the ways of God a little bit more, right? That's exactly what he's doing here. God that God knows exactly every detail about what's going on in those cities. But God is saying, look, in order for mankind to understand that I will go to great lengths to let you know that I didn't just arbitrarily just judge this place without knowing, I'm sending even the angels there to do their own investigation. So the two men, two angels, verse 22, turned and headed toward Sodom. But Abraham was still standing before the Lord. And Abraham approached, drew near the Lord, and said, Will you sweep away the godly along with the wicked? What if there are 50 godly people in the city? Will you really wipe it out and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 godly people who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the godly with the wicked, treating the godly and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? Notice something here. This is so important. And this affects our relationship with the Lord and our prayer life with the Lord, just as it did Abraham. Notice that Abraham is basing his appeal on his knowledge of who God is. Notice that. The reason why Abraham is praying the prayer that he is and interceding now for Sodom and Gomorrah is because he's walked with God. He's been the friend of God. He knows the mind of God at this point. He knows the heart of God. So he's making that prayer appeal to the God that he knows. Our prayer life can be so much more enhanced by our growing knowledge of the Lord. We'll know more of his heart and how to pray based upon that intimacy, that closeness, that nearness that you and I can have with God just as Abraham did. 
He's basically saying, God, you're not a God that doesn't differentiate or discriminate between the wicked and the godly. I know that about you. So that's why I'm coming to you now and saying, God, won't you not sweep away the godly there with the wicked? And so you know the story. He goes through and he keeps reducing the number. Well, God, if there's this many, will you destroy it? And God kept saying, oh, if there's that many righteous, I won't destroy it. And finally he gets down, what about 10? If, 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 if you find 10 righteous people in those cities, will you destroy it? And he said, no, I won't. Obviously, there weren't 10 righteous people in those cities, including Lot and his family. They didn't even add up to 10, which I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'm going to go ahead and say it right now anyway. All those years that Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, he didn't influence very many people to righteousness, but the ungodly in those cities certainly had a negative influence on him and his family. That's where you and I have to be careful. Yes, God calls us to be an influence, but we better make sure that we're influencing the world rather than allowing the world to influence us. Because Lot wasn't a big influence in Sodom and Gomorrah. Otherwise, there would have been way more than 10 righteous people after all these years of him living there. And we know that the Bible teaches that God is going to separate the godly from the ungodly. In fact, in a passage in 2 Peter chapter 2 that even references Lot, at the end of that passage, Peter says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of their temptations and reserve the unrighteous for judgment. He knows. Even Jesus used the parable of separating the sheep from the goats. We know that even those of us who believe in the rapture know that God is going to separate his people and take his people out of the earth before the great tribulation begins. Separation. Abraham knew that. But here's another really important hint at something that you see in seed form here and then it it is developed throughout the bible and that is the principle of representation and substitution because notice in abraham's intercession he's basically saying well if there's so many righteous will you spare the wicked for the righteous. And God says, yes, I would do that. If there's that many righteous, I'll also spare the wicked. That's the principle of representation and substitution. And you see that principle carried out and then magnified in its greatest way with our Lord Jesus who is the ultimate representation and substitute for us. In fact, Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, the just, Jesus, suffered for the unjust, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The just suffered for the unjust. Jesus Christ was our representative. He was our substitute. He took our penalty on himself. He took our sin on himself. He was the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God. And yet in the love of God, he took all of that punishment and became a curse for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. And that seed, if you will, you see illustrated here even in the intercession of Abraham. Where Abraham understands the heart of God, that God is willing to spare the wicked for the sake of a righteous one. Abraham is absolutely convinced that while he's interceding, that God, his God, his friend, will do what is right in the end. He's convinced of that. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? How comforting to know that when you and I appeal to God, pray to God, intercede for others to God, that at the end of the day, when we leave it in God's hands, we know that at the end of it all, God is going to do what is right all the time. He's never going to do wrong. He's always going to do what is right. When you and I can come to God and know, I can leave this in the hands of my God because I can rest knowing that he's going to do what's right. That makes all the difference in the world. But how did Abraham get there? He walked with God. He was a friend of God. He was close to God, near to God, intimate with God. And it's because of that fact that he became such a great servant and such a great intercessor. So I want to leave us with this tonight. There's a lot we could take out of this chapter and passage, but I, I want to leave us with this challenge of even intercession. I want to encourage you tonight. To be an intercessor. Part of our privilege as God's people is the privilege of being able to intercede to God on behalf of others. And where did Abraham get that heart of intercession? To pray not only for the godly, but to pray for the wicked, the ungodly. That God would spare them. Where did he get that heart from? Walking with God and being God's friend. Abraham didn't just have that kind of a heart. That heart became part of who Abraham was because of his time with God. Because he saw that that's the heart that God has for the lost. And I wondered even in my own life, how much I need to pray more for those that don't know God. To intercede for them. To ask that 
God would spare their life until someone came and gave them a clear presentation of the gospel and that their heart would be open and receptive. Because that's the heart of Abraham. God, would you spare those cities if you can just find a few righteous people? And God said, yeah. Unfortunately, there weren't ten righteous people that God could find in those cities. And so at the end of the chapter, the Bible says God went his way and Abraham went his way. And next week, we're going to look at the terrible judgment that God brings upon the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to learn some great lessons from Genesis chapter 19. Don't forget, before you go to sleep tonight, remind yourself, is anything impossible for your God? No, not at all. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that we have been encouraged through the story of Abraham through you coming to visit Abraham and encouraging his faith and his wife Sarah's faith. And God, you're using it to encourage and strengthen our faith in you as well. Because even sometimes, Lord, as your people, we begin to doubt that you can do it. That nothing is too difficult or hard for you. And God, we need to come back to that place in our life. And we need to realize through this great chapter that, God, your friendship with Abraham truly transformed him and his heart. It gave him a servant's heart. It gave him a heart of intercession for others. It gave him a heart, Lord, that sought you and wanted to pray and talk to you about things. And God, you can give us that same heart today if we're interested in walking with you like Abraham. So, God, I pray tonight that that would be our desire. That, Lord, we would always live in all of you because of how great and awesome and majestic you are. But, God, may we also live in awe and wonder of you that the Lord of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords, also wants to walk with us every day and be our friend our intimate, close, and near companion. God, we thank you for that as well. May we be encouraged tonight as we wrap up another day with you. And Lord, would you just give us a good night's rest and wake us all up tomorrow, ready to face the day, ready to be a servant, ready to be an intercessor, and ready to embrace the God of the impossible. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.